this morning, I'm going to share with you out of the book of Philippians, and in doing so, we're going to be in chapter 3 and in verse 1. Uh, I love the writings of the Apostle Paul. He's credited with authoring two-thirds of the New Testament. He goes from the chief persecutor of the church to the chief evangelist of the church, and in doing so, becomes a hero of the faith. And over the process of three great missionary journeys, he travels the known world planting churches in unreached places. One of the favorite churches of mine that he plants is the church in Philippi. Its story is recorded in the second half of the book of Acts. The church of Philippi is interesting for a few reasons. Number one, it's a totally unreached territory. Number two, the founding members of the church are a businesswoman named Lydia, a Philippian jailer and his family who are so spooked by an angelic earthquake that they repent and get baptized and a demonized slave girl that Paul gets irritated with and casts the demon out. And God goes, perfect, we've got the founding members for Pursuit Philippi. Isn't it amazing how God works through all the different fragmentations of society, bringing people together who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other, sits them in the house of God, and then declares there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, because in the Spirit and by His blood, we are one. And many years later, Paul will author a follow-up letter to that church in Philippi, which is the book of Philippians, which we are in this morning. And in chapter 3 and in verse 1, Paul begins, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, for in fact, it's a safeguard for your soul. Finally, my brethren... If you catch anything that I write, if you hear anything that I say, if you remember any counsel that I give you, get this one point. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. In total, Paul writes four letters from prison. They're known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Some historians believe that Paul would have been writing these letters while he was physically chained to a Roman guard with one arm in chains and the other holding a pen. He authored these letters to the local church. And Paul's obsession was Christ and his church. His concern was their unity and their love and their stand against heresy, their unapologetic witness in the face of persecution and backlash. Paul was a teacher. He was a theologian. He was an apostle. He was a disciplinarian. But most of all, Paul was a father. And the father heart of Paul would come through in excruciating transparency in many of these letters. He would say things like this, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. For I write you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, no, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions amongst you, that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. 
See, Paul understood that to do violence against Christ's church was to do violence against Christ himself. Paul understood that, that Jesus didn't go to the cross to give us a podcast. He didn't endure the shame of the world and sit down at the right hand of the Father to give us a live stream. Christ gave his life that he may present us a glorious church, holy and blameless, without spot and without wrinkle. And yet we treat so casually what Christ considered so costly. And see, Paul would likewise give his life to defend the church from corruption and compromise. He refused to stop visiting these local communities. He refused to stop teaching in these local congregations. He refused to stop writing to these local pastors. And it became such a threat to the Roman government that Emperor Nero personally signed his death warrant. And in the midst of Roman imprisonment, watch the repeated declaration of Paul in the book of Philippians. Philippians 2 and 16, I will rejoice on the day of Christ. Philippians 2 and 17, I do rejoice with all of you. Philippians 2 and 18, so you should rejoice with me. Philippians 4 and 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4 and 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Are you catching the pattern? Paul's apostolic teaching hinges on this one reality. You have a joy that the world didn't give. Therefore, the world does not have permission to take it. And joy is a decision you make, not reflective of your exterior circumstance, but instead of the God who sits upon the throne of your heart. So whether I am hungry or well-fed, whether I feel alone or in community, whether I'm rich, poor, or anywhere in between. I got a God who is working all things together for the good of those who love me. And today is a good day to rejoice because any day is a good day when you've been raised from the dead. And David says it like this. Today is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I'm not glad because of what the day brings. I'm glad because I served a God who gave me another day of breath in my lungs, gave me another day of purpose in my life. And it might be a day filled with challenges, but I refuse to live another moment without giving honor and glory to the God who saved me, bought me on Calvary's hill, redeemed me in his cleansing blood. Today is the day that God has made. He didn't just make Sunday. He didn't just make your honeymoon week. He didn't just make the day that you got promoted. He didn't just make the day that you got blessed, double blessed, more abundantly blessed. He made the day when you got that diagnosis. He made the day when you got cut off in traffic. He made the day when you got in a fight with your wife on the way to church. He made those days as well. And the God who authored all of creation through his spoken word holds every moment of your life in his hand. And you may not know what your future holds, but you worship the one who holds your future. So it's a good day to rejoice in the Lord. enter into his gates with thanksgiving and praise. It's not an option. I must 
must give honor and glory to this God. I must remind my soul of how good he's been in my life. Oh, I even might be in the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil. For my God, he is with me. In fact, he makes a table for me in front of my enemies. My cup overflows. My head's been anointed with oil. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You got a reason to rejoice. You might have been fired from your job yesterday. You got a reason to rejoice. You might got an unexpected medical bill headed your way. You got a reason to rejoice. For my God will supply everything that you're in need of according to his riches and glory. And if he were faithful before, he'll be faithful again. For the God of our forefathers is faithful to a thousand generations. And Paul says this. For our light affliction is but for a moment. But it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And Paul moves into verse 2, which is his fashion. He'll start off with a greeting and an encouragement. And then he'll move into an admonishment of fatherly correction. He says this, now be careful. Watch out for them dogs. Watch out for, for them evildoers. Watch out for the, for the mutilators of the flesh. In, in verse 2, Paul warns against three groups or types of people who would seek to cause harm to the church in the Philippi community. Now, these descriptions of, of types of people may not be of interest to us 2,000 years later, but when you explore them in the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek, all of a sudden the richness of what Paul describes comes to light. For dogs in the original language meant a spiritual predator who feeds off others. Some years ago, I had the unfortunate experience of going camping with some friends. And I know that we're in the Northwest, and some of you just love to camp. And I just don't understand why people in our world today spend thousands of dollars to go pretend they're homeless for a weekend and then call it fun. Oh, it was so fun. We slept on the ground. No reception. Ate terrible food, pretended we know how to cook outdoors. If you want to cosplay Little House on the Prairie, be my guest, but don't invite me. I stay at the Marriott, you can camp wherever you want. But we was camping, somebody had a bright idea, let's go in that swimming hole, it'll be fun, we'll hang out, yeah. So we did. Swam for 30, 45 minutes. Didn't sense nothing, didn't feel nothing, just having fun, splashing around. And all of a sudden, we got out of the water. I looked at one buddy, he looked at me. I said, what's on you? He said, I'm about to ask you the same question. What's on you? And we looked down, and there was leeches attached to our body. I said, this is the judgment of God. I should have never come on this camping trip. We didn't notice it while we were swimming in the river. We didn't notice it in the busyness of the activity that we was consumed with. 
We didn't notice it as we were splashing around and having fun and telling the stories of the glory years. But the longer that we was in that water, some uninvited guests became attached to the life source that was inside of us. And it wasn't until we got onto shore and had some perspective from some other people who could see clearly that we noticed I've been hanging on to baggage from the last season when God wants to give me luggage for the next season and I got to offload some leeches that are sucking me dry. Paul says, watch out. These dogs are barking in the church. They're looking for a free meal. They'll eat whatever you produce. And as soon as you're all out of what they deem good, they'll move on to the next prey to feast again. And Jesus speaks to this in John 10 when he explains the difference between a a hireling and a shepherd. He says the hireling flees when trouble comes, but the shepherd fights the predators in order to defend the sheep. Are the sheep perfect? No. Are the sheep always friendly? Most of the time, not friendly. Are the sheep always easy? Never, because I'm one of them. But the shepherd willingly lays down his life anyways, not because it is comfortable, but because the flock is too important to be left alone. See, the hireling is a contractor, but a shepherd is an owner. At the first sign of trouble, the hireling takes off for the hills, but it is in that moment that the truth is revealed. For the hireling existed for a paycheck, but the shepherd exists for the sheep. And worse than wolves disguised as sheep are the ones disguised as shepherds. The dogs ask the question, what's in it for me? But the shepherds ask the question, how can I serve the sheep? But it wasn't just the dogs that he warned about. It was the evildoers. Now, evildoers in the Greek, it's very interesting. It meant this, a loud and a grievous sore. When you go unhealed, the only thing that you'll attract is other people who are unhealed. And two unhealed sores that come into contact with each other, the only thing that they produce is STDs, spiritually transmitted diseases. You know, growing up, I wanted to be a garbage collector. I don't say that tongue in cheek. I remember the garbage truck driving through our neighborhood and seeing the garbage man hanging off the back of the truck with one hand looking all cool. I thought to myself, that looks like so much fun. But God said, no, I want you to do something dirtier. I want you to be a pastor. (laughs) See here what I found. Some people build their entire personalities around collecting garbage from unhealed people. It's almost like they think, well, if I can't get better myself, let me at least find someone else I can stink with. See, collecting someone else's garbage might make you feel important for a season, but the minute you make a decision to get better instead of staying bitter, they'll just find somebody else to dump their garbage in. No, I can't control what someone else is throwing away, but I can make a decision not to be an open receptacle for someone else's toxic trash. Some of you ought to start telling folks, stop sending me your magazine. I did not sign up for this subscription. And if you don't get healed up from what hurts you, you'll end up collecting more of what stinks. Why? Because familiar spirits attract each other. 
Let me tell you a story. I collected baseball cards for years. It was my passion when I was young. At the age of 12, someone decided to gift me hundreds of baseball cards that I immediately stored away in plastic sleeves thinking I had just hit the jackpot. I, I sorted them by team and player and perceived importance. I told all my friends about the stroke of good fortune that I had come into. I held on to them for years, carefully transporting them every time that we moved houses until one day, very confidently, I took them into a local store to get evaluated, convinced they were worth thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. And what I found out was devastating to my 13-year-old heart. The cars were worthless. They were knockoffs. They were fakes. They weren't even worth the time and effort that I had put into sorting and storing and transporting them all those years. See, I moved them for the last time when we bought our house in Snohomish. How do I know I moved them for the last time? Because my wife told me, if you ever move again, I'm leaving you. <laughs> And I moved those baseball cards into my attic. And one day I'll give them to my kids and, and they can use them as kindling in a bonfire. <laughs> All those years I had thought they were so valuable when really all it represented was someone offloading their trash because they didn't have the courage to deal with the garbage themselves. See, you can be a garbage can or you can be a recycling can, the choice is yours. But I'm not spending another day putting trash in plastic sleeves, carefully transporting it between houses. No, we are recyclers, taking what the enemy meant for evil and allowing our God to use it for good. But it wasn't just evildoers, it, it was mutilators. And that word in the Greek means to slice or to divide. A, a, a church that is gathered but not united doesn't have the power to address any of the problems they identify. A couple who is married but not in unity doesn't have the ability to stand the test of time. But when an assembled, united people gather, it is not the size of the crowd, but the strength of their unity that causes all of hell to shake. See, unity is a choice we make to prefer the mission at hand over the methods we disagree with. Unity is a choice we make to honor the God we serve despite the differences we have with people around us. And see, the religious crowd, they had become experts at distorting the scriptures and sowing disunity into the church by compelling people to try and follow the Old Testament law. Hear me very carefully. The devil knows the Bible better than us. The problem is he quotes it unfaithfully. Remember, friend, the only math the enemy knows how to do is division. Division never produces righteousness. In fact, it produces the opposite. Division produces disunity. Division produces dysfunction. And ultimately, division produces sin. And when division takes root in your life, it'll poison the tree that Christ came to plant. <laughs> this week, I finally wrote a letter that has taken me a decade to compose. 
And I wanted to take a minute this morning and share that letter with you. Hi, Dr. Gomez. You probably don't remember me or my wife. It's been some time since we first saw you. I know you've moved out of state. I know you've seen thousands of clients since we first met, but I just wanted to tell you my story. And 10 years ago, this September, my wife and I sat in your office on the brink of divorce. She was pregnant, I was busy, we were both disconnected, and frankly, fed up with trying to make things work. She cried the entire time. I sat on the chair opposite her with a blank stare on my face. We were divided on just about every issue you could imagine. Honestly, Dr. Gomez, I can't remember the advice you gave us. Uh, frankly, I don't remember the books that you asked us to read, but I remember this. You cared enough to hear our stories. You cared enough to tell us the truth. You cared enough to tell us that we were months away from getting a divorce if something didn't change. And I can't explain it. I can't explain all what happened in that counseling office. But something did change. And what begun in that counseling office would ultimately help us bridge our divides. Come back into unity and forge a new path forward. The last 10 years hasn't always been easy. We've had miscarriage after miscarriage. We've had seasons of doubt and, and never-ending challenges, but I am grateful to God that you helped us not give up. Uh, today, Dr. Gomez, my, my, my wife and I, we got three kids, and, and, and we pastor a church in this region, and, and in a few months, we'll celebrate our 14-year wedding anniversary, and, and I just wanted to send you an email and say thank you. Your work made a difference in our lives, and we are grateful. The enemy was trying to divide us. Thanks for helping us stay together. Friend, the church is better when we stay together. In verse 3, Paul moves on. He says this, it is we who are of the circumcision. He's speaking of the Jews. He says, we, we serve God by his spirit. We are the ones who, who rejoice in Christ Jesus. And ultimately, we are the ones who have put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul here in verse 3, he, he is outlining the chief hallmark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he says it so clearly, we serve God. God, not by our spirit, but by his. Meaning this, his spirit is what enables your service in the first place. See, Jesus says in John 6, no one can even come to me unless the father who sent me first draws them. Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is for, by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Have you ever considered that this whole process of you following Jesus was not something you manufactured on your own? You did not find God. God found you. You were chosen from the foundations of the world. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You were purchased on Calvary's hill and you were sought out by the father above. 
And if this entire process started by God's spirit, it can only be sustained by God's spirit. So don't ever get it twisted even for a minute. We don't serve God by virtue of our own initiative. We were made to enjoy God for all of eternity, which means you were chosen for this very moment. We serve God by his spirit. And then in verse five, Paul does something he almost never does. He launches into his LinkedIn resume. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees. We demanded strictest obedience to Jewish law. I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. And as far as righteousness is concerned, I obeyed the law without fault. I think as the early church is reading this, they're thinking to themselves, where is he going from here? What's happening? That's the old Paul, not the new Paul. And then he launches into maybe the most beautiful, transparent dialogue in all of the Pauline epistles. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more is I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I, I have willingly lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, that I may know him, that I may know him, that I may know this Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings that I could be conformed to his death. Just look at all the things that I've done and, and the awards and the degrees and, and, and the resume and the accomplishments and the wealth and the promotions and the accolades. But all of these, these gains I now consider lost because Jesus is so much more worthy than anything that I have ever dared to imagine. It is not that they are without value. It's that when I compare them to Christ, they don't even come close. In fact, Paul says, I must consider them garbage. I must consider them rubbish. I must consider them as nothing more than worthless trinkets that I may gain Christ. Paul says, my flesh was right. I was circumcised. My bloodline was right. I'm from tribe of Benjamin. My membership was right. I was a Pharisee. My passion was right. I was very zealous. But it doesn't matter how right you are if you are right about the wrong things. But in the end, when Paul saw Jesus, he said, this is a loss compared to knowing him. Hear me, Fred. You can't gain Christ until you are able to properly value Christ. And you can't properly value Christ until you are willing to properly value everything that is not Christ. See, after the end of Paul's life, after all he had seen and done, the good the bad and the ugly here is his one request 
It's not for comfort. It's not for an escape from his unfortunate circumstance. It's not for God to correct everybody's wrong opinion about who Paul was or or what he said. Here is Paul's singular, salient request that I may know him. Not just know about him. Not just amass knowledge around him. Not just collect facts concerning him. No, I must know this Jesus. Similar to collecting baseball cards as a young boy, I could tell you the name of the players. I could tell you the team that they played on. I could tell you the stats they had from the previous three years. I could tell you what college they went to before they were drafted. I could tell you what the scouts said about their skill set. I could tell you the year they were born. I could tell you the area of the country they came from. I had a lot of facts about who they were. But at the end of the day, I was just a collector of information, for I did not know them. And maybe one of the scariest things about being in church in the West is that our brains can grow while our hearts shrivel up and die. We've collected facts and knowledge and academic insight. We know the Greek and we know the Hebrew, but we don't know him. And Paul's plea to the church is that they would know this Jesus. How will I know if I was a successful father that my kids may know him? How will I know if I was a successful pastor that this region may know him? Oh, friend, I simply refuse to become successful at things that don't matter. I must know this Jesus. And watch how Paul ends this thought to the church in Philippi. Not that I have already attained. Not that I have already arrived at my goal. But here's my commitment. I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus has also taken a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but there is one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward towards those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God which is in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine for a moment when Emperor Nero cuts the head off the Apostle Paul and he marches through the pearly gates into his eternal reward he would see many of the saints that he had murdered himself welcoming Paul into glory as the words of the Father ring true in the courtroom of heaven well done and faithful servants. Get this. While Paul is warning the church about dogs, evildoers, predators, he is speaking to what he was before he saw the glorious light of Christ on the road to Damascus. I was a predator locking pastors up. I was a devil. 
leader trying to destroy the church. I was an open and grievous sore carrying the trauma and baggage of my religious affiliation. But there came a day where I saw Jesus and I considered it all loss so that I could pursue him with everything that I have. And I'm telling you, only a God as good as the one that we read about in this book to change the narrative of your life. You might have came from abuse, but abuse doesn't have to come from you. You might have came from addiction, but addiction doesn't have to come from you. You may have been a mutilator in that last season, but you have been made new by this Jesus we serve. Paul is saying here, come on church. We haven't attained. We haven't arrived. Come on, church. We haven't apprehended. We barely started this race. But let's press on. Let's take hold of that which Christ has already secured for us. Let us forget those things which are behind and instead press towards the goal of the prize, which is the upward call of God. Hear me, friend. You must learn. You must learn the skill of supernatural forgetfulness. I can't hang on to previous versions of people. I can't hang on to previous seasons of life. I've got to trust that the God who was faithful yesterday will be faithful today and he will be faithful forevermore. And to quote Shakespeare from the great play Hamlet, I'm here to tell you there are more things in heaven and in earth than are ever dreamt of in your philosophy. There is more ahead for your life. There is more ahead for this local church. We haven't arrived. We barely started. Just watch what this God will do through a united church that worships the author of life itself. For this is the God that we serve. And this is the type of people, by God's grace, that we can become. In September, we celebrate the nine-year anniversary of pursuit. Oh, there's a lot of cool things that God has done. In one sense, it might be easy to check the boxes and shift into cruise control. But I am possessed by the upward call of God, knowing that what we have seen pales in comparison to what God's about to do next. And I'm asking you to allow God to renew your great hope your great perseverance and your great unity and your great vision because this region has no idea what's in store for it because the church of Jesus Christ has just begun to wake up. Oh friend, this is who we are. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? join in prayer this morning. Father, we love you. God, we honor you. We make a decision today to allow 
the operational norm of our life to be rejoicing and joy for all that you have done and have yet to do. God, I pray that you would remove that thing in our heart that tries to creep up and stamp our identity every time that we walk through momentary and light affliction. God, I pray that today would be the last day that the circumstances of our lives get to brand the attitude of our heart. We make a decision today that we will operate in supernatural joy. God, I pray that this church would be the answer to the prayer of your son Jesus from John 17. That we would be one as you and the Father are one. And that God together, we would make a commitment to keep our eyes on the prize. Not on the things that so easily ensnare or the weight which so easily entraps, but with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you endure us with courage, perseverance, long-suffering, and boldness that we would be exactly the type of church you paid such a high price for? We commit to these things now in Jesus' name. And if you agree, all God's people said amen. Amen. And amen.